Good morning. It's very good to see you. Let's pray, shall we, and ask for God's help as we look at his word together. A God of might and glory, the God of whom we have sung, uh, we now, Lord in heaven, we want to hear from you. Uh, We praise you that you've spoken, we have your word recorded, and we pray that through what you have said, you will speak now to us and bring to us the Lord Jesus. We, We look to you. Please help us now. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you are um, tired of the Lord Jesus. Are you tired of the Lord Jesus? And I wonder if we'd dare to admit it if we were. Tired of Jesus, what would that mean? I I wonder if um, if you were to make a list of the things that excite you, whether Jesus would make the top ten. The top five. I wonder, are you tired of Jesus? What would that look like if we were tired of Jesus? Uh, Slow to talk to him? Uh, Finding comforts apart from him? Not finding ourselves happy in him? I think we probably all struggle with this. Um, And I can assure you of one thing this morning. I can assure you that there is nobody in this room who has ever and does ever and will ever make too much of the Lord Jesus. Nobody will make too much of Jesus, and that's what we're going to think about today. It is impossible to overdo Jesus. Um, Over this summer, um, five Sundays over the summer, we are looking at the big picture of the Bible. Uh, The Bible is um, a compilation of 66 books written by about 40 different people over a period of about 2,000 years, are written in lots of different places, in three different languages. Um, but it comes together to tell one great history. The Bible, as a, as a united book, tells us God's great story. And we're looking at that over the summer. We've, we've reached a point, picking up the story at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And Mark, we think, had the help of Peter, and he sat down to to record the events of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, we're in the beginning of the first century, and this, this man called Jesus starts to go around. He starts to preach. And the message that Jesus was, was saying, um, well, Mark tells us, he summarizes it. Uh, if you look at verse, verse 15, Jesus is going around, and there are three parts to his message. He says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. First part of his message, kingdom come. And and then the next part of his message, he says, repent. The kingdom comes and it brings a confrontation. There is kingdom confrontation. And then the third part of his message, he says, believe the good news. The kingdom coming is a good news story. It is the best news story. There is kingdom comfort. Three parts to Jesus' message. Kingdom come, kingdom confrontation, kingdom comfort. Uh, What does he mean by that? Well, let's think about it in turn. Jesus' message, he goes about um, the region of uh, of kind of uh, Nazareth in Galilee. That's where he is. He's traveling around the, the, the area. And his message is, the time has come. This is tantalizing. Jesus is saying there is something that has been waited for for a long time, and we've reached the point where it is here. Uh, like waiting for Christmas. 
Um, The little child who knows Christmas is coming, who maybe lies awake at night, aching for Christmas to come. And maybe they're there and they're, they're wishing that Christmas would come now. But it doesn't, does it? Christmas doesn't come until it comes. It doesn't come until the 24th turns into the 25th. But when that happens, the time has come. It's now. Now, Jesus doesn't go around saying, once upon a time, I've got this idea. He says, no, this is it. It's been long expected, long awaited, but now the moment has come. The kingdom of God has come near. What is it? What is the kingdom of God then that has come near? Now, how does Mark understand it? And Mark is brilliant and maybe my favorite of the gospel writers because he, he, he's so compact. He, he almost kind of writes in bullet points as he jumps through the events. He's almost listing them. He goes very, very quickly. Now, look at what he does. If you've got the passage open, you see he begins in verse 1 with a title, what he's going to write about. This is his subject. He's writing the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's his subject. Then verse 2, he says, as it is written. This good news that he's going to talk about is good news that is explained by what was written beforehand. Written, he says, in Isaiah the prophet. And Mark here then jumps back 800 years to the time of Isaiah. He refers to um, a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, uh, Isaiah 40 is a message delivered to people at rock bottom. Uh, the, the people that Isaiah 40 is written to are, are, are people who have lived a fairly comfortable life. They've been quite affluent. They've lived in big houses. They've, they've been, I guess, kind of surrounded by this illusion of safety. And, and if anybody ever came and told them that they were in danger, they would say, no, we're not. We're fine. Look, look at what we've got. Look at all of our security. We're okay. We've got our contingency plans. We don't need to worry. But disaster struck. Their country was invaded. They were, they were torn from their homes. They were dumped into a foreign land. Everything got turned upside down. Everything was confused and befuddled. And, and, and in that place, Isaiah 40 says, the people in that place are saying, God doesn't know about us. God doesn't know what we're going through, and if he did, he wouldn't care. God's forgotten us. He's ignoring us. And it's into that doom that Isaiah brings a message from God, quoted by Mark, and the message is, God, God himself is coming. God is going to come. And and Isaiah 40 says, this is gospel. So it says, go and shout it from the rooftops. It's gospel. It's, It's good news. Look, your God, he's coming. Isaiah says, the sovereign Lord comes with power. Isaiah tries to describe the sovereign Lord, the incomparably great God. The most that you can imagine will fall a million miles short of how great this God is. Isaiah says, he is the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. That's the message of Isaiah 40 to these desolate despondent people saying, God is going to come, he's going to come, he's going to rescue, he's going to, he's going to change, he's going to, he's going to put things right. God is going to come. Uh, a bit like um, making a cake. Can you imagine making a cake? Some of you can, some of you can't. Um, bear with me for a minute. You're making a cake. You mix 
packing away the ingredients, you put them in the bowl, and the phone rings in the middle of making the cake, and you get a bit confused, and you kind of, you, you, you're trying to talk on the phone, but you, you get a bit muddled, you, I know, you reach for the, the sugar, but you get the salt, and you say, oh, you, oh, you, you, it's getting a bit, bit more kind of confused as time goes on, and then, and then as, as you're getting a bit kind of flustered with it all, you, you knock the bowl onto the floor. And you spill all the mixture on the floor. So you get that and you scrape up. You put it back in the bowl. You look at the bowl. You're picking out bits of fluff and bits of hair and bits of dirt and bits of muck. And there is some point when you're going to have to hold up your hands and say, I'm done. This is not working. I've got to start again. And life can be like that, can't it? Now We, we, we give life a go. We have to. We, we, we try to make it work. And, and we... We kind of, we get so far, but almost every step we take on in life, as life goes on, we, we, we accumulate problems. Uh, as, as life goes on, the, the uncertainty of it all gets, gets more, it multiplies. Uh, some of the problems come from us, some from others, some from the mess of the world. Life gets tangled and we, we try to make do because we have to because it's all we've got. But, but at some point we need to stop and take stock. And we need to recognize our life isn't perfectly mixed. And an honest evaluation will see that the tangle of life is inescapable. And there's a point we're going to have to get to where we say, I'm done. I'm done. It's not, it's not working. I've got to start again. And that's where the people in Isaiah 40 have reached. And Isaiah says, God's going to come. He's the everlasting God. He is the creator that is such good news because if anybody is going to be able to put it right, if anybody is going to be able to give that new start, surely it's the one who made it all in the beginning, isn't it? The creator. Now see, in creation, the creator revealed his purposes. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, God, God, God established his kingdom on earth. He made a world that was very good. And he made people in his world to enjoy his blessings. And he gave those people this potential that they could earn immortality by obeying his commands. And we saw this a few weeks ago in our kind of scheme as we're going through the Bible. We, we called it the pattern of the kingdom. God's people were Adam and Eve in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they were enjoying the blessings of perfect relationship. But it was lost. The first man, Adam, failed to achieve to achieve eternal life because he ran from God. He wanted to make his own rules, and by making his own rules, he ruined it all. So following the pattern perished kingdom. Uh, there weren't any people who belonged to God. Uh, the, the place of God, the Garden of Eden, was evacuated of people. There was no one there. And instead of blessing, there was just curse. But God didn't give up on his plan. God never gives up on his plan. And so into that ruin and wreckage, God found a man called Abraham, and he made kingdom promises to him, the promised kingdom. The promise was that Abraham's family, his descendants, would be the people of God, and God would place them in a land of their own, in the land of Canaan, and they would enjoy the blessings of life under God's loving rule. Now, Abraham's family multiplied. God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered them to a land of their own. And in that land, he gave them a king who would model and teach to them life under the rule of God so they could enjoy his blessing. And, and as that kingdom grew, uh, the kingdom of God was being modeled to us, being pictured in what we called the partial kingdom. Uh, the, 
the people of God, the nation of Israel, in the land of Israel. And when Solomon built the temple in that land, it looked like it was all in place. That God's kingdom had come. But history repeats itself. And the nation of Israel followed the pattern of Adam. They had God's good rule, but they refused him. They, they ran away from him. They wanted to make their own rules and they ruined everything. And the nation was divided. They were torn away from the, the blessings were buried under generations of sin. But God never gives up on his plan. God never gives up on his plan. So into the ruin and the wreckage, God sent his messengers. He sent the prophets who spoke of the kingdom of God. And last week, we saw the prophesied kingdom, the promises that were, that were spoken of a, of a new Israel. A, a new Israel which now included all the nations in the people of God. And a new temple that is a new creation. Uh, and under the, the, the new rule of a good king, uh, people would enjoy his blessings. Now, this prophesied kingdom includes prophets like Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, who in chapter 40 of Isaiah spoke a message to the ruined and the hopeless and the lost. A message in Isaiah 40 that begins with the words, Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, not sticking plaster comfort. There's so many comforts that we see around us are just that, aren't they? They're just a sticking plaster. They don't fix anything. Now, what's the best comfort that the world around us can offer? I'm still haunted, I've said it before, but haunted by the words of a Britain's Got Talent contestant decades ago. It was decades ago, I think. Uh, this guy, I think he was called Hugh. He was Welsh, but that's okay. Um, and he, he delivered pizzas for a job. That, that's what he did. And, he, and he, he didn't seem to be much, but he went up on stage and he sang. Uh, I think he sang a song from um, The Miserables. And he... Um, it, it, it sounded like heaven had been opened. It was beautiful. Um, and afterwards, he was interviewed. Straight as he came off stage, and he said, for that one moment, I felt complete. That's haunting, isn't it? One moment. That was it. One flash in the pan. And then what comes afterwards? What comes after that one moment of feeling complete is an erosion of the stability until nothingness. That's the best isn't it? That's not the comfort that Isaiah heralds. The comfort that Isaiah heralds is the comfort of God himself. God coming to get their sorrow and turn it upside down. God coming to, to be their strength when they have no strength. God coming to give them a glorious future. God who is beyond all might, who is marvelous and powerful beyond all understanding. Isaiah said he's going to come and when he comes he's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. He's going to gather lambs in his arms and he's going to carry them close to his heart. Now, Isaiah said there'll be a voice. There'll be someone. There'll be a, a, a voice and it'll be in the wilderness. A messenger. And the messenger will say, you've got to get ready because God is coming. The God of all creation, the God of all comfort, he's going to come. And Mark picks that up when he writes about Jesus. And he says, in the wilderness, that voice has now been heard. The time has come. The time has come. That voice says, Mark is John, the baptizer. He's come and his message is, get ready. You've got to get ready because God is coming. You see that, his message in verse 7. The message of the baptizer is, after me comes one more powerful. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came. Jesus came. And Jesus preaches, the kingdom of God has come near. 
How has the kingdom come? Well, we follow Mark's leading, don't we? We follow Mark's leading. How has the kingdom come? Isaiah said, there is someone crying in the desert, saying, get ready for God to come. John the baptizer is that messenger in the desert saying, get ready for God to come. And then Jesus comes. Now, how does the kingdom of God come? Because Jesus comes. And Mark tells us key things about this Jesus. Look at verse 9. And Jesus came. And what happened? He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Mark already said in verse 5, if you glance up to verse 5, that all the region of Judea, all the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, are going out to be baptized in the river Jordan by John. It's probably a bit of hyperbole here, uh, but the effect is everybody's doing this, and Jesus does it. The Lord Jesus is, is one among the many. He is one with them, one of them. Everybody's doing it, and there's Jesus because he's part of the everyone. Then we're told in verse 12, uh, after he's baptized, the, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Uh, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Mark is very compact, remember, very concise. Uh, but what he writes here is echoing the story of Adam. Adam was tempted by Satan and fell. But Jesus, when he was tempted, was faithful. And the implication is staggering. The Adam was, was there in the Garden of Eden put in this kind of probation. His obedience would earn immortality. And then Jesus comes and he walks the same temptation. But unlike Adam, Adam was tempted in a place of perfection. He was tempted in the garden. Jesus is tempted in a place of ruin. He's tempted in a wilderness. He's tempted in this world that has this been long stained by sin. He's tempted in a, in a world that has lived long under a dark shadow of death. And Jesus entered into our humanity. He shared the weakness of our fallen nature. That was how he walked the path of Adam's temptation. And he didn't fall. He didn't fall. Jesus' 40 days of temptation also echoes the history of Israel. The nation of Israel who were tested for 40 years in the wilderness. And when Matthew records the temptation of Jesus, he shows how Jesus responds to every test of the Satan with words lifted from Israel's temptings in the wilderness. And the point being made is that where Israel failed, where Israel fell, Jesus did not fall. Now, if you were to search all of history for a life of perfection... If you were to be able to scrutinize the life of every person, there is only one who has never fallen. There is only one life that has obeyed the will of God in all perfection. And when that one was baptized, the heavens were torn open. And the voice of God roared down his approval and said, Here is the faithful son, the beloved son. Here is a life that is met with heaven's stamp of approval. A life that brings delight to the heart of God. God's people, Adam, fell. God's people, Israel, fell. But Jesus never failed. Now, he's all that God's people were always meant to be. 
His life earns the blessings of eternal life. Imperishable bliss for Jesus is well-deserved. Mark, of course, is telling us more. He recalls the expectation of Isaiah 40. How the Lord of glory, the incomparably great creator of the ends of the earth, is coming to bring his comfort. And his coming will be announced by a voice in the wilderness. And Mark says that voice is John and that coming is Jesus. In Jesus, God has arrived. And it is bonkers. It is bonkers. If we weren't so used to it, we would laugh at this. It's an outrageous claim that Mark says this Jesus of Nazareth, real man, fully human, is also fully God. Now what's happening is that what was patterned in creation, a man with God in a, in a harmony of happiness in the place of God's presence, what was, was then modeled when the temple was built, the place of God's presence, the point where heaven and earth connect, that is now realized and fulfilled in the living temple. Uh, Jesus Christ is the place of God's presence. Uh, you, you see it at his baptism. At baptism, at the baptism of Jesus, heaven is torn open, showing the place of connection between heaven and earth is named as the beloved Son. And by his perfect obedience, he merits all of heaven's blessings. All the delight and the happiness of heaven is directed in full to one place. And one place only in that place is the person of Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is located only in Jesus. Jesus declares the kingdom of God has come. Come because he has come. The one who is the true people of God. The one who is the place of God. Who is the blessing of God. Everything that had been patterned and pictured and promised beforehand is now fulfilled and exceeded in Jesus Christ. So the thing is, you can't make too much of Jesus. There's never been a church that focused too much on Jesus. There's never been a, a family that has given too much attention to Jesus. No, for all of us, there have been times when we've done too much, isn't it? We've watched too much TV. We've, we've worked more than we should. We, uh, days when we've overdone it. At times when we've, we've eaten too much or we've outstayed our welcome. or we've, We can have too much of everything, but we can never have too much of Jesus. We have never exhausted the riches of Jesus. We have never overdone it with Jesus. We can't make too much of Jesus. And do you know why? Because he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Through him, all things were made. And for him, all things were made. And he is is beyond all things, the cause of everything and the end of everything. He's the, the highest of all the heights. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Zenith and the Fulcrum. He's the foundation and he's the capstone. He is the most preeminent. He is all eminent. He is most eminent. He is above everything. He is supreme and he is sublime. And everything in history, everything in history, right from beginning to end, all of it wraps up and is included and contained and focused on Jesus Christ. No, our words cannot get close to describing how wonderful and great Jesus is. 
We can't make too much of Christ. And so isn't it appalling how often we act as though he were enough just for a brief thought every now and again? Now, isn't it awful that we, we, we treat him like my auntie? Now, every year, my auntie makes some slow gin. She gives us a little bottle. and We, we really like it. And so we just take it in little bits, a little sip every now and again. And we go sparingly because it's so small. We can treat Christ like that, can't we? As though he was small. We wouldn't want to wear him out. We wouldn't want to praise him too much in case we run out of things to praise him for. Now, I, I wonder if we, we sometimes kind of plateau in our Christian lives. We, we, we get into I don't know, a good routine. We have some good habits. We we, we can do the Christian thing. We kind of talk the Christian talk. But there's a kind of stuckness to how we think of Jesus. And we, we lose a longing, a thirst for more. And maybe, maybe we lose it because we start to doubt whether there is more. So we, we start to contain our Christianity. We put up fences. We, we, we have to balance what we have of Jesus with other things. We need to have some other comfort, some other distractions, because we're not quite sure he will, he will be enough. And so when Jesus begins to proclaim his message, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, and that brings a confrontation. Jesus says, repent. Now, the message of Jesus is not business as usual. The message of Jesus is not as you were. When Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God has come near, the implication is that there has been another kingdom standing in its place. There's been a a pretender on the throne. And the Bible tells us that the whole world has been held under the oppressive rule of a tyrant whose name is death, holding people in slavery to its terror. But Jesus says, he announces the, the breaking in of a new kingdom, a new kingdom that is really just the old, old, original kingdom. A repent, says Jesus. And to repent is to change your way. To, to repent is to take a new perspective on, on everything, God first, and everything that follows. And, and since Adam, we have, we, we've all lent Adam's way. We've all wandered like Adam. We've all tried to live on our own terms and do the things we want and not obey God. And repentance is the point when someone holds up their hands and says, and says look, If God asks me to love him and to love others, I've just not done that. I've just not. I've not treated people right. I've not given God his due. And however much I try to sort things out for myself, I cannot do it. I cannot make myself clean. What I try for myself, it just doesn't work. I need a new start. And if my life is going to be put right, God has to come and deal with me and my sin. The kingdom of God confronts us, and we have to choose. Now, we can continue as we are, or, or we can turn. Turn from following our own ways and seek mercy from God. And then Jesus declares comfort. 
After saying repent, he says, believe the good news. What does that mean? Well, look at me again at verse 1. The good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus says, believe the good news. What is the good news? It is about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus says, believe the good news. He's saying, believe in me. Believe in him. He is the good news. Jesus, he is the comfort of the the almighty God rushing towards us. He is God drawing near to gather us like lambs in his arms and to press us to his heart and to hold us in his eternal perfection. Jesus is God coming to us. God coming and entering into our human situation. Becoming like us in, in every way. Tempted just as we are and yet without sin. Never failing. And earning by his perfection the right to heaven. And then he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And he did it because he comes to bring such everlasting comfort. He comes to bring such comfort that he puts down his own life to carry the curse of our sin. The judgment of God demands a price for our sin, the price of a life. And Jesus comes and he says, that price must be paid, but it won't be your life It'll be mine. He says, I'm not going to let you suffer the condemnation that your sin deserves, but I will come and I will shield you. I will shield you from the fires of hell with my own body and blood. And he holds us tight to his heart and protects us from the wrath of God himself so that he can ensure our indestructible happiness and our everlasting comfort. He's good news. There isn't really good news apart from him. The only hope that there is for humanity is Jesus Christ. The only hope for you is Jesus Christ. And it's a great hope. It's hope of new birth. It's hope of new beginning. It's it's, it's hope of, of life beyond the misery of this age. It's a hope of a rescue, a rescue out of the shadow and the struggle. It's a hope of eternal pleasures. Eternal pleasures in a world where sin and sorrow and death are all behind us and above us and ahead of us is is perfection and purpose and pleasure forever and ever and ever with Jesus. Jesus says, believe the good news. And, And to believe is to receive. That's how it works. Believe is to receive. John The Baptist says Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This Spirit of God, the Bible says, is the way that God brings to us the blessings of Jesus. Mark says that Spirit, that same Spirit, descended on Jesus at his own baptism. Uh, The one who will baptize with the Spirit is filled with the Spirit. And and we're to see there that the the power of, of holiness that fills Christ is the, is the power that he dispenses to all who believe on him. We're to see that, that, that the person of the Spirit of God who fills the man Christ Jesus is the same that he pours out to all who believe on him. And we're being shown the, the connection. The, the, the connection between us and Jesus is, is the Spirit. Because to believe is to receive. 
That, that is, is, is to receive Christ by the Spirit so that we who believe have all that Christ is. Now, we, we, we stand at a point in history where, where Jesus has come into the world. He, he's the climax of everything that God promises. He has come. He's the climax, but the completion we still wait for. The story of the kingdom goes on. We, we, we're still caught in a, in a gap. A gap between the two comings of the Lord Jesus. After the present kingdom, our, our outline speaks of the proclaimed kingdom. And in the proclaimed kingdom, God's people are, well, it's Christ and now all those who are in Christ. And, and God's place is Christ and all those who are in Christ. And God's blessing is, well, all the blessings are in Christ. So for everyone who is in Christ. And, and between these two comings, there are two kingdoms at work in our world. There's the kingdom of this age and the kingdom of the world to come. And, and those who trust Jesus are called to seek first the kingdom. We're called to pray for the kingdom. We're called to live as citizens of the kingdom. And in the times in which we live, people either belong to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. It's, it's quite stark, really. There's not an in-between between these two kingdoms. Everyone belongs to the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of the world to come. The kingdom of this age or the kingdom of Christ. And so, as we bring this to a head this morning, the, the thing is this, Jesus is good news. He just is good news. But the, the question that matters for all of us to answer is, is Jesus good news for you? He is good news. Is he good news for you? Now, is, is your only comfort that you're not your own? but that you belong body and soul in life and in death to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and that's a difficult thing to wrestle with because we can't make too much of Jesus. We just can't. And our experience is that we, that we do get tired of him. Now, we might not call it getting tired of him, but, but being tired with Jesus explains every sin, every compromise, every spiritual dragging of our feet, every dullness, every coldness of heart. In fact, the more we think about it, we might wonder if we are ever anything but tired with Jesus. And, and as we think on that a bit more, we might, we might start to think, well, well, maybe it's because I just have a little bit of Jesus in me. I, I, I've, I've just got a part, and that explains my situation. Because I've, I've just got a little bit, and I look and I think, well, they must have so much more of Jesus. But, but the thing is that when, when we believe, we receive. And Christ baptizes all who believe with the Holy Spirit. At the moment, they believe with the Holy Spirit so that all who believe have all of him. Because you can't have just a little bit of Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You have all of him. And if you have him, then you're, you're wrapped up in his protection. And by his death, he takes the curse for all your sin. And by his resurrection, he shares all his life with you. And, and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it's all yours. See, when we believe, we receive all of Christ. But it can be a bit like this. We, um, we were on holiday in France last week. And um, at some point, one of the children looked out of the car window and said, it doesn't look like France. It looks more like England. It's fair enough, isn't it? It can look like 
can't it? But it wasn't that. You can't be a little bit in France. You're either there or you're not. So even if it doesn't look like it or feel it, the reality is that you're there. If you have Christ, you have all of him. Even if there are times when it doesn't look like it or feel like it. So that means that, suppose you have one of those days when, when you are tired with Jesus. That's what it is. You're spiritually dry. You haven't got any appetite for Christ. And you think, oh, this isn't very good. I need to try and remember all the good things of Jesus. And you're trying to remember them, but you just, you just can't connect with them. And as you're thinking, you start to spiral down. You think, well, maybe, maybe none of it's real for me. Well, when we have those times, it's good for us to ask the Spirit of God to show us something of Christ in us. Well, what would it look like to see something of Christ in us? And we go through the pages of the Bible and we find in John's first letter, he says, if we love God, we will obey his commands. Okay, if I've got some of the life of Christ in me, then there'll be some obedience to his commands. And so, so, so I look at my life and I think, golly, that is crushing, isn't it? That, that's much more crushing than comforting. Because all I can see are ways that I haven't obeyed. Okay, well, what do I do? Well, I, I, I keep going on in the Bible. and I'm, I'm in 1 John and it says, well, if we love God, we will love other believers. Now, only the true children of God will truly have love for the believers. And so we say, well, do I have that in me? Do, do I see that in my life? And, and, and as I think about it, I think, actually, do you know what I do? I, I, I do love other believers. I, I, I enjoy some family bond that there is around Christians and I have a concern for them that I can't quite deny and, and it, the, the love for other people is not, it's not anything like it should be no it's, it's really not it's not something I'm particularly proud of there's so much room for improvement but there is something there to be improved and because there's something there to be improved something of that that life of Christ in me well, well God doesn't do a half job does he no, we, we do half jobs all the time, don't we? We start something, we get bored, we get distracted, we don't finish it, but God doesn't leave work unfinished. So, so, so if we look into our lives and we see anything, even the smallest resemblance of Christ in us, since God does a complete saving work, we can know that that means that we have all the life of Christ, even if we don't see it. And even if we don't see it, we don't need to look at ourselves, do we? Now we look at what God has done in Christ. Now the whole Bible, as we have been exploring over this summer, it tells this one story of what God has done in Christ. And the good news about Jesus is that he has done everything needed to rebuild the kingdom of God. He's done everything needed for it. The kingdom that was patterned in creation, the kingdom perished at the fall, promised to Abraham, partially modeled in the life and nation of Israel, prophesied through the prophets, brought present through the coming of Jesus, now proclaimed in the people of Christ as we wait for his return. And then, we'll finish next week, but Jesus has done everything, everything needed to rebuild the kingdom of God. He's good news. Well, the question we have to ask is, is he good news for me? Is he good news for you? Not nice news, not kind of hold it in the back pocket for a rainy day type news, but is he good news, soul-satisfying news? I don't know what you answer to that, but it's probably worth taking your answer to God in prayer. So why don't we spend a couple of minutes in quiet?
talking to God about how you answer that question.